LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Listen without limits. Unchain your brain. Change your thinking. Change your life. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host, Greg Moffat. To start today, I'd just like to thank those of you who've become Legalized Freedom subscribers since I introduced the subscribers section a few months ago. Subscribers get access to the second half of each new show for as little as 77 pence per week. If you'd like to get that, just go to LegalizeFreedom.com, scroll down to the bottom half of the homepage, and you'll see the membership options laid out there. My guest today is Jason Horsley, who joins me to ponder the question, what if some people out there in the world are not like us? Some people go through life not quite feeling fully part of the human race. Surrounded by untold millions who seem to want from life only that which they are told they should want, those who refuse a simple life of comfort and consumption are often made to feel like misfits and failures by the corporate machines and media matrix which promote and profit from mass conformity. But what if there are more bodies than souls on earth, and despite what we are told, all people are not in fact created equal? Do all humans really have the same potential? Are all the people in the world fully human, or merely existing rather than living, even human at all? A tulpa is a paranormal being created through spiritual or mental powers, either through a deliberate act of individual will or unintentionally from the thoughts of numerous people. Could this concept account for the strange, uncanny sense some people have about many of the humanoid beings they live among and about a consensus reality splintering more and more with each passing day? Hi, Jason. Thanks so much for joining us again today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Hello, Greg. Jason, uh, just in case there's some people listening to this who don't know, uh, just uh, let people know uh, who you are and what you do. I don't know. That question, well, it changes every time I get asked it. And currently I'm, I'm practicing what I preach and putting my money where my mouth is in terms of being a liminalist, which is the name of the podcast that I'm winding up currently. A liminal means the space between. It also means non-structure or anti-structure. And um, it's where all the good stuff happens, uh, is in the liminal space, I would say. And uh, so, you know, airports, they're liminal places, hotels. We're, we're, on your one, we're away from one state to another state. And, uh, which we always are, really. We're always in motion. But it's particularly so now. So I was a writer, uh, but I just wrote possibly my last book, 16 Months of Hell, which I think we were maybe going to talk about, but then we came up with something else to talk about. 
And uh, I'm, as I said, I'm winding up my podcast, so I'm not really a podcaster anymore. But I would say that I'm an adventurer and a spiritual explorer, which is a bit different from a spiritual seeker. Uh, in that, well, uh, spiritual seekers is kind of a cliche, you know. Whereas um, I, I like the term explorer. I just just invented it there, spiritual explorer, and that. And I'm I've been engaged for fifty four years. That's how, how old I am, and it did start in childhood in trying to understand what it means to be human and 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 where we are where i am how i got here and where i'm going and and why i'm here uh, and when will i arrive you know the big questions they've always been on my mind and so i dedicated a, a period a large chunk of my life to writing books and essays and making films and sort of multimedia creativity but particularly emphasis on writing and a particular emphasis on the dark side of the human experience, because I would say that the reason we don't know the answers to those questions, because all the other creatures on the earth do, uh, is because we've been severely traumatized by a malevolent social system. And, and well, yeah, so I wanted to get to the bottom of that, like how, how did the world end up the way it is? Uh, this, this, this torture chamber, of a prison camp world that society is not not the not the earth not the planet anyway so i'm in this transition between culture and nature trying to make the steps back to nature and um i see it as a logical necessary endpoint to my decades of creativity and writing not that i'm saying it would completely end but it had to have some sort of trajectory towards whole wholeness wholesomeness health healthy living happiness because um, you can't investigate you can't map hell as I put it indefinitely you'll never leave then there has to be a point to mapping hell and the only point to mapping hell is, is to find the exit so I'm I'm currently that's the stage I'm at now I'm currently I've mapped the exit and now I'm seeing if I can go through it which would be the final proof to others but to myself that I I, I did actually find it whether you'll hear anything from me on the other side remains to be seen well as as different as we appear to be i think i've been on the same basic journey uh, to be quite honest if life has taught me anything it's that uh, the idea of arriving somewhere is, is kind of always upended always always thwarted you know i've learned this to my cost recently you know you, you, I'm, I'm here and then it's like well no you're still moving you know so i think that's an ongoing process i don't think we ever really arrive um i don't know what death looks like or if there's anything on the other side i'll find out soon enough no doubt but in where we find ourselves now there, there isn't really any arrival and i think that's what um frustrates a lot of people because that's what they, they just want to things to be settled but they never are so I don't know if that yeah. if that makes any sense, but that's that's how I feel. It's kind of just get over this idea that you're going to arrive anywhere. Um, yeah, well, I think there is a settling that can happen, but that would be an inner. So if our nervous systems get settled, then we don't need any kind of external security or stability because, as you say, there isn't. There's no such thing. Everything is constantly dying and regenerating <coughs> down to our cells in our body, but there is an, in, an inner peace that, 
doesn't have to be some sort of mystical pot of gold at the end of an imaginary rainbow. It's very simple. The nervous system is relaxed and calm, in harmony with itself and with its environment, which which is about that's liminalism again, being uh, being uh, at ease with constant change and constant instability. Uh, that is uh, that's the stability paradox. That's where we find the stability. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You you can have that that inner core that that's at rest, as it were, all around it is in motion. Yeah. The eye of the hurricane. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, you mentioned your latest book, um, Sixteen Maps of Hell, and we, the original idea was that we'd have a talk about that, but we couldn't really settle on anything. And and to be honest, I still haven't finished reading it. It's a rather large book. Yeah. But I found. During this so-called lockdown, of sort of the, the last almost year and a half of the pandemic, like a lot of people who had their daily routines disrupted, I found that my sleep pattern was very disrupted and I was tending towards staying up late and getting up relatively late. And that's something that I, I really didn't like. Uh, it wasn't agreeing with me and it's something I've been trying to address recently with, with success, actually, I'm getting there. Um, I want to sleep longer and I want to sleep better. It's very, very important, I think, for our health. In, in any event, one thing I've taken to doing was rather than ending the evening with, um, you know, artificial light and electronic stimulation, that I would go to bed before I was ready to go to bed and rest just in, in darkness, even if I couldn't sleep, and try and feed my mind with something beneficial. So I, I've been listening to to podcasts, quite a lot of people do this actually. They listen to some sort of media, you know, when they're, trying, they're falling asleep. And I gave yeah. this a go. I'd never done this before, but I gave it a go. In it, so I was listening to one of yours. It was something fairly recently you posted, but it, it was from your archive from quite a long time ago. Mm -hmm. And as I was drifting off to sleep, you, you were speaking and the phrase came out, what if some people out there in the world are not like us? And mm -hmm. The whole thing that you spoke about, you and, and, and your guest, really, really captured my imagination because it was something that is a question that, that I had asked in various forms uh, throughout my life. So, and that, and that really got me to thinking. And, and then I, I messaged you about it uh, and my, my feelings about it. Well, that was from a from a, an earlier incarnation of your podcast, I understand. That was the last episode of Stormy Weather. Uh, the closing time, the sorcerer's revelation, uh, which I felt spontaneously through a couple of nudges to, uh, compelled to revisit. Uh, and one of the nudges was that line that Dave Oshana, who's a spiritual coach guy from East End and living in Finland, who, who I've been working with and playing with, uh, not in a band, but in some kind of strange experimental human project uh, for, for over a decade now. Anyway, on a recent event that he hosted, he said that, those words. What if it, it was starting to occur to him that maybe what if some people out there weren't like us? So I was, so that was one of the nudges and, but there'd been a couple others. Um, Somebody in that same group or that field said, uses the term straw dogs. She was saying that a lot of people out there were straw dogs, which is this from this uh, Chinese 
Sun, well, it's mentioned in the Tao Te Ching, but it refers to a tradition of, of creating straw dogs for uh, ceremonies, and then then they they get thrown out, and, and it, it's comparing nature itself that that nature creates these these forms and then discards them, but it's not. It doesn't worship them just because they're alive, and it's not disparaging them just because they're dead. It's just the, it's the, the nature of things. That things are created, forms are created, and then they're cast off. But anyway, this person was using the term straw dogs, I thought, in the specific sense, a sort of Truman Show uh, kind of sense that some people out there aren't like us, that they're more like um, temporary stand-ins or extras or actors pretending to be something they're not. They, they didn't elaborate, but the way that they were expressing it really reminded me of my insights. During the time that I did the Sorcerer's Revelation, I presented it, and so I thought, oh, I'll, I'll revisit it and uh, just see if it's... I think with this last year, and this is also somewhat the context that David Shana was mentioning it, that he was becoming more and more sadly convinced that most people out there were, in his words, brain dead, that there wasn't really anybody home based on the behaviors and the compliance and the, the lack of questioning and, and you know, the, the social momentum, really, the crowd, the way that the crowd is moving. The mass of humanity seems to be moving in a way that lemmings never did. You know, that's a false rumor or a misinformation campaign about lemmings because apparently they never did herd themselves off mountains. But, but it was effective, if so, because human beings have are imitating this fictional version of the lemon, lemming now. Um, and, and so that, yeah, that does, that did seem to be a new context, not really that new, but it's just become much more palpable, I would say, that the difference between myself and the mass of humanity, and, uh, and I would say the need to recognize it and acknowledge it and talk about it in new ways, because we know about the old ways that they didn't work out very well, that elitism and, and, and scapegoating and persecution drives and hierarchies, these things don't work very well. So, but neither does pretending that you know, all men and women are created equal, and that that's supposed to be the antidote or the positive ideology. Um, but those who created that ideology didn't practice it either, or at the very least it certainly hasn't led to a true democracy. So there's a clue in that. Either they were hypocrites lying, or they just got it wrong and idealist, and it was impossible to practice it. But there's really no evidence in nature that, that beings are created equal in a functional sense. We can say deep at a deep metaphysical level, we're all temporal, and so we're all going to be you know, no matter how large a number is, if you divide it by infinity, you still come up with zero. So, in that context of death and eternity, there's no hierarchical difference between you or I and a, and a beetle or a blade of grass. We're all temporal. We're all going to disappear completely and leave no traces. But that's a very deep, high, philosophical, metaphysical, and very abstract. So, Functionally and certainly socially, there's really no there's no evidence for, and there seems to be no adva no good reason 
for pretending that we're all equal. So, so then, yeah, I just wanted to reopen that that area for discussion because it wasn't really discussed. I mean, you mentioned at the time you mentioned it, me and another guest, but there wasn't there wasn't another guest then or, or in the recent version. Neil Kramer was on there, but only because it was the last story weather, and so I asked him just to. That was Neil Kramer. Yeah, that was Neil Kramer. Oh my God, I didn't realize that. I thought, oh my God, this guy sounds like Neil Kramer because, in all honesty, when I listened to that, I it reminded me of my one and only interview with Neil Kramer many years ago. When I mentioned that to you, when I sent you a message, I said it reminds me of an interview with Neil Kramer. I didn't. I don't know how I didn't pick up on that. Yeah, well, I assume that's why you said it, and I wondered because <clears throat> Neil, uh, who I'm not in touch with now, although I did tell him about this recent revisiting. Um, he, as far as I know, he never talked, well, maybe he did with you, but he never talked about that interpretation of, of reality. I know that he was aware of it because I included him on that last podcast, and I remember afterwards he would, he said something like, my God, people out there are actually going to be hearing this. So I know that he was he was struck at the time by by how potentially controversial what I was saying was and how dangerous I would say, or ballsy at least. Um, but as far as I know, Neil and no one else has ever picked it up. I mean, maybe Neil did with you, I don't know. But hopefully he cited me. But it's not, anyway, my point was, it, it isn't something that, that I've talked about with anyone, I don't think. And I think it's, I think there's a reason for that. I think it's, it's a very difficult model to get our head around. Uh, it, it just feels like you just, you just can't think that way. But I think we need to start thinking in ways that we think that we can't think very much. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll come on to the question of equality in due course. That's a big part of this. But um, yeah, I mean, it's 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 a difficult insight to sort of t- to deal with. But I mean, I felt that all my life as well. I, I I've got a vivid memory of it was in the seaside village that we lived in when my mum and dad split up we went to stay with my grandparents temporarily and I can see myself now standing in the driveway of the house and a group of adults uh, some people had come to visit and all the adults were standing in the driveway just before they went into the house and they were, they were talking and I remember just stood there looking at them and just thinking what I didn't think in terms of swear words because I didn't have those to hand at the time, but now I would characterize it as like, what the fuck is the matter with these people? Just the the drivel that I I just I couldn't identify with them. I said, do, do I am I supposed to turn into one of these people? Is this what the future is? Is this what we should do? So I've had that question at the back of my mind all my life, and when I I think it was through Neil actually that I first came upon the the, the 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 concept of the tulpa or the thought form. Um, I've, I'll say a bit about that in my recorded introduction. So by the time people get to this part of our talk, they'll already know if they don't already what tulpa is. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I, I, I felt like I was in some kind of uh, you know sort of looking around, saying, "Okay, where's the hidden camera in all of this? You know, what what sort of joke? You know." Uh, TV show am I on here? You know, <laughs> when a, a guy with a cheesy grin and a microphone going to pop out from behind the scenery and say, mm-hmm. ah, you know, we, we, we almost had you there. The candid camera reference may, yeah. may, may not cross the Atlantic. I don't know, but certainly I grew up with that, uh, yes, with that model. 
if this basic idea that uh, of of most of the entities out there being well, to use Dave's word, brain dead, it, it resonates very strongly with me and it explains a lot of things. But as I just mentioned, it's deeply, deeply uncomfortable because as, as I said to you prior to our talk, I, I always thought to myself, oh, you know, who am I to think that somehow, um, I'm not part of this, this mass of humanity that in, in some way that I, I'm different. It is, it's a really, really awkward thing. Uh, some, yeah. some people are very comfortable with it, but not many, I suspect. Uh, well, I think it's hard to separate from misanthropy, and I was a misanthropist in my, in my youth, even very young. I had a, a viewpoint that only stupid people were happy, and it's and various different there were various different components to it. But essentially, I was a misanthropist and an elitist, and I would say I was kind of bred that way by my Fabian, you know, ancestors, uh, but. I'm not now. I don't consider myself to be now. And I, and I do think this is radically different from simply the viewpoint that there's two kinds of people in the world and some of, some of us are spiritually and so on and, and, and capable of autonomy and, and, you know, more evolved and the rest are just this, this kind of dross mass of humanity that it's just to be heard and exploited because that's clearly the viewpoint of the elite and from, the, uh, you know, the dark elite that, that people talk about a lot. Uh, and, and from their point of view or from that point of view, we, you or I are part of the, the mass, you know, the dross that's to be exploited. So, so clearly I'm not, it's not compatible with that viewpoint, much less equivalent to it. It's something much more mysterious and more subtle, I would say. Um, but I'm not quite sure I can say what it is yet, so I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, part of the reason why the, the, the general apprehension of the world is, is uncomfortable in the way that I mentioned is because it does tie in with what you just described as the, you know, the dark elite. And mm. I've often wondered if I was to meet any of these people if I would, if I would end up identifying with them in, on some level, as um, you know, as appalling as that sounds, um, yeah. one thing that I always felt was, or, or kind of observed to be happening and kind of resented, was that the these the, the fat controllers kind of doing everything they could or everything they can to dumb the mass of humanity down and then criticize them for it. He's saying, look at you, you know, you look at you, you, you useless eaters, you know, you idiots, but yeah. what, what, but inculcating that in them. And, yeah. and then the idea that I had a bit like the guy at the end of invasion of the body snatchers, who's running into the highway, screaming his head off, just going, you know, wake up, you know, they're here, look around, you know, this idea of trying to save people and, I, I was disabused of that notion quite early on. Like, don't try and like, you know, this idea of waking people up, you know, the sort of thing that David Icke seems to be engaged in, which is probably yeah. where, where all his frustration stems from. You know, you, you can't do that and you shouldn't do that. Well, I think you can, you can rope people into your own cult. That clearly is an effective means of social control and it's a way to elevate oneself to a position of power and it's also a way to 
give people meaning and, and make them feel like they're waking up and you yourself as the cult leader might feel that you're being effective because you're getting them to agree with you um, but I would say that second matrix stuff as I coined the term it's, it's an illusory awakening we've got woke culture now as a written large I don't know about history but written on, on the you know on the cultural landscape it's, it's, it's it's very obvious now there's this whole movement called woke, which is to many of us the opposite of an awakening. Uh, so that, but that, yeah, I mean, I'm agreeing with you, but I was adding some sort of nuance there. Uh, um, and I, yeah, I guess bring it to the, to the personal about waking people up that I think that, and part of the reason it's, it's a bad idea, is that, yeah, you, you can turn people into yourself or try to, or you can get them to see things that you've seen and, and think the way that you think, and they might think that they've woken up, and it might be useful to a point, but they're not really discovering their own potential that way. They're, they're just finding a new hairstyle and a new outfit to wear where they feel more empowered, let's say. Um, and... I mean, this is, I'm going to be all over the map here, but this is something that I've written about a number of times. One was when I was criticizing Jordan Peterson, that if you, ha if you try and reach a lot of people, you're going to have to uh, generalize your message. You can't customize it. And so the nature of trying to wake a lot of people up or alert a lot of people to certain truths is you have to dumb it down and you have to... Um, Essentially, you're, imp you're, you're imposing a, a different level of conformity. You're getting people to conform to your truth rather than to the truth that they've been socially conditioned with. And yeah, it might be an antidote up to a point, but I would say that, um, it, and this might contradict other things I'm going to say later, but that each of us is individual. I mean, even, you know, it's the cliche of the snowflake, and that, that's all identity politics, potentially that we're all unique snowflakes. That can be very narcissistic. But I think there is a geometrical or just a natural truth in that, that every blade of grass is subtly different from every other. And this would also be a way in which we're all equal. We're all, we're all potentially unique. So, so then it's more about recognizing the uniqueness in each individual or each creature on the planet and and well just seeing it really but in the case of human beings drawing that out and, and so if we try and impose one size fits all even if it's a big size that we think is enlightenment say or ultimate truth if we try and impose that on on a mass where we're going to be doing a disservice and and I would say this relates to the, the lack of equality. Yeah, we're all equally unique, but part of the uniqueness is, or an, another aspect of it in a more general way, that we're not, we all have different levels of potential. Not everyone has equal potential, and it's extreme. It's an extreme perspective. Having worked in the thrift store, I got to, on the one hand, I got to largely undo my ancestral program of elitism, that, you know, the poor were just beneath me and I, uh, and I didn't have to waste time with them they were my you know bread and potatoes whatever the expression is that was how I was earning my living 
and and I was dealing with people one by one as individuals, and it wasn't just that they were poor; I was also you know, extremely damaged people. And, but anyway, the part of it is the poverty, um, and and so I really got to see how wide a spectrum it is. You know how some people really can barely even function beyond just getting food or drugs for themselves or both. Um, and so there's absolutely no point in trying to awaken those people in, in the sense that we're talking about or David Icke is talking about. But that doesn't mean that there's no point in, in trying in trying to help them or even, I think that that's a slippery slope, but, but in, in um, finding what is within them that is is of some value, finding a way to enjoy and appreciate the experience of encountering those people or those whatevers, and and here here I'd say is where it's it's the opposite of the persecution drive, is that um, whatever other people are, they're phenomena in in our field of experience, and so there's something we can gain by interacting with them. But, but if we're, if we're really sensitive and we're really tuning into what others are that we're into, as we're interacting with them, I think we'll, we might start to really be amazed and astonished. There really may be demons out there that take human form. There may be animals that can take human form. There may be hologram. You know, who knows? Like we could get, we could jump sharks very quickly if we start speculating and using actual examples. But uh, on the other hand, it can be a bit vague and abstract if we don't. The, the basic point is just because people look like people, to assume that they're all exactly the same genetically, psychologically, emotionally, in terms of awareness, in terms of development, it's, it, it's clearly absurd. It's just a question of how far we're willing to take the question that some people are not like other people. Right? That, how, how big a spectrum might there be in our field of experience, in terms of what we experience as people, uh, and and does this is there an answer to this question to why the world is the way it is? Because you know when I if I look at pictures of people who shop at Walmart, there's an infamous website there, Walmart people. It's kind of it's sort of dehumanizing people, but it's also showing how people dehumanize themselves by just presenting pictures of Walmart shoppers in the U.S. Um, I forgot where I was going with that. Oh yeah, if I if I look at, God forbid, certain TV shows, and I realise that these are popular shows that apparently millions of people watch, um, and any other number of examples, if I look at the way that the world's going, there, there must be some sort of momentum behind that. And then I also hear that there's I don't know if you know the number yet, but oh not yet, but still if you kept track of the supposed population figures, but what, 8 billion people or something? Supposedly those 8, people, 8 billion people exist. And so I, I deduced that, that that's where a large part of the mass momentum comes, the energy, the fuel for, for the, the world that we see, right? So then, but I know that if the world only consists of people like you or I, I can deduce logically, and I'm grouping you and I together, I mean, we're quite different, but still enough similarities that I feel I can do that, then the world wouldn't be the way it is. So I think 
there's a missing piece there. People say, well, it's just dark elite. They're manipulating the billions of people to make them into, you know, right? Okay, yeah, but if they've been effective, they've turned people into zombies. And what, and what is that? Like, what is a person who's been turned into a zombie? Right? We don't, we don't, we don't know, because it might be generational. It might have to do with the, the breeding practices have been so debased, sexual interaction, sexual uh, consummation, uh, co uh, procreation has been so debased that ch children, are, bodies are being born that are these empty vessels that can be, etc. I mean, I can, I can keep going, but I'll be getting into metaphysics, but hopefully you get my point that if people have been turned into something almost subhuman over the generations, well, how complex and how deep does that go? Well, we know we can observe, and we're told as well, I mean, at the most basic level, that I don't know how this varies across uh, nations or, or other sort of demographics, but that there's a certain type of human being that's more likely to breed than others, and that people who think about the implications of it are less likely to do it. So you do get a lot of, to use the elite term, uh, you know, useless eaters, or you do get a lot of mindless shoppers turned out by people, you know, that, that, that the following a pattern, as it were. Mm -hmm. And that has, even in my lifetime, I think that's changed the, the dynamic in terms of, uh, the population of humans or, you know, apparently those that appear to be, to be human. And that's in a relatively short space of time. I mean, I think about the people in my life, friends, family, associates, uh, colleagues, you know, people that I've worked with and come to know a lot of good people. Because if I've, I don't have any enemies, I don't consider I've got any enemies because there's a certain type of interaction I would have with someone and they, I just don't involve them any further in my life. That's the end of the, the matter. So maybe that uh, in the past has kind of skewed my, my, my view of things somewhat. Mm -hmm. But one thing that I found very early on, and it made some difficulties for me, um, particularly in my teenage years. I mean, you can, well, you've got your, your own personal story, you know, which uh, you've certainly experienced your fair share of difficult times. But I remember struggling to uh, understand why so many people simply seemed to want what they were told to want in life. And it seemed so paltry. And I think it was probably at that time that crystallized in my mind, um, this had been in the mid eighties, this idea about what, cause I, I and originally I, I kind of turned it as some people do actually. I don't know if you, if this resonates with you. I kind of turned it in on myself a little bit at first, uh, that, that it would kind of, that I was somehow at fault. You know, what, mm. what, why don't I get it? Uh, why don't I want 2.5 cars and 2.5 children and, and 2.5 five lawnmowers or whatever you know why don't i want a blender and a, 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 a tumble dryer and a, a microwave and you know a steady job and early retirement and uh membership of a golf club which i did have briefly actually uh you know why why, why don't i want the white why isn't that enough well i don't know if i ever had much doubts about my doubts in that regard uh although because as I said I did have this attitude that anyone who would, who would, who was happy with the way things were and who would settle for that kind of thing was just an idiot. 
I had that attitude as a, as a teenager and even before that, I think. And that was part of my elitism, but it was also an existential awareness of the splinter, to use the, the movie cliche. Um, and my my existential ennui did go deeper than that. Like, I felt I couldn't be happy in reality, never mind in, in, in you know, in a nice house with a nice car and a, and, and a nice wife kind of thing that you're describing. I knew I wouldn't be happy with that, but I thought I couldn't even be happy with reality because I, I had this existential uh, dilemma, or, or it's more than a dilemma, but anxiety around feeling unreal existence felt unreal to me and uh and i would think that i probably carried that over from childhood as what you described as being a child i don't know how young you were but looking around at adults and thinking what the hell's wrong with these people i, I know someone else who had that experience very acutely as a child and even promised themselves they would never turn into that and although i don't remember that precisely i'm I'm, I'm, I'm positive that I had that experience too, and I think probably most children do, or did. Maybe that, as I say, we're degenerating rapidly as a species, and that children are being taken over younger and younger by, by the, um, uh, delusion that this is it. The materialist delusion that material satisfaction is not just enough, but it's all there is, therefore it has to be enough. Um, which is kind of my father's philosophy and attitude, but he wasn't very convincing because my father was an alcoholic and a very unhappy man. So although he, he talked, he, he, he badmouthed religion and he, and he talked as if he was happy with just, you know, with just com a comfortable life, he clearly wasn't. Uh, and I don't think anybody can be. It was just popped into my head what Rudolf Steiner said that atheism, if it was understood properly, atheism would be diagnosable as as a psychological form of dysfunction, as a mental illness. I don't like the expression mental illness, but I think he used it. Uh, as a form of insanity, even. I think that's true. In a certain sense that atheism, which is inseparable from materialism and also nihilism, I would say that they all bleed into each other. Uh, it is a symptom of, of being dysfunctional, being biologically and psychologically dysfunctional because, uh, the real nature of existence is that everything is imbued with some numinous essence of divine, eternal meaning. I think that's absolutely undeniable. I, I also think it's undeniable that it's very, very, very hard to, to connect to it and stay connected to it. But what I'm talking about here is a is a complete lack of connection to it, but worse, a lack of awareness of the disconnect. So, so for me, the awareness of being disconnected was what drove me through my life. I, I knew that I had lost touch with something. At some point, I don't remember when it happened, or I do have certain a certain key memory where something happened, but I think it must have been before that. I lost touch with reality, but I never lost touch with the with the realization or the awareness that I'd lost touch with reality, and that kept me going. Now, I'm trying to bring it back to our general subject, which is 
what makes a difference between people. I, I think, or at least I'm going to try and articulate something that I might think, that if people lose, or bodies, human bodies, because I'm not sure what people mean, really, lose all touch with reality, and even forget that they have, then I think they become like empty vessels, because they're not, if they don't have a connection to divine, then the divine can't move through them. If they're not connected to their souls, then their souls can't incarnate. So then I think they become uh, like host bodies for, like nature bores a vacuum, for something else, which I'll leave blank for now. And that if that happens, genera- that, that can accrue generationally. So you can have your bodies who are disconnected from reality and forget completely and so then they get taken over by material urges and material memes and agendas and then they have children. That concludes part one of our interview. Part two will be available soon in the subscribers area at legalizefreedom.com. Legalizefreedom.com.